3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Genevieve. Good morning, Lauren. How's it going? (laughs) I'm so happy to be back. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast live in the studio. Yes, this is the first time that we've been into the studio live in months so um literally two years for some of us I know I (laughs) can't even never (laughs) (laughs) look um I think we need to just say the biggest thank you of all time to Gab uh Mm. our current affairs coordinator for the most patient welcome back of all time definitely Mm -hmm. definitely um been more more than helpful like yeah. It's been it's been a long road to get here, but we're finally here. And the magic of live radio. Who knows what's gonna happen today? Exactly. Yeah. Anything could happen. Anything could happen. Um but what is happening on the show? What have we got? Who are you interviewing? Remind me. Yeah, so I'm doing an interview. It's gonna be a live one. We've kind of um mixed in a little bit of uh, pre-recorded interviews and live interviews, but um, I'm going to be talking to um, an artist. Um, her name's Shannon Higgins. She's a part of this exhibition. It's actually happening um, out at the ACT, but um, uh, her photography looks incredible anyway. Um, but it's called, the exhibition's called Here I Am, um, and it's a um, exhibition celebrating women artists and uh, gender non-conforming artists. And yeah, I'm just going to be talking to her about her work in the show and just, yeah, her artistry in general. So should be good. Awesome. And we have cool pre-recorded content. Oh, well, we stole the award-winning QR code um, Mm. by Tuesday Breakfast alum George Maxwell about um, intimate partner violence in queer relationships, which is obviously really important to highlight during the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. Yes. Um, Particularly as a reminder that gender-based violence does not discriminate when it comes to sexuality or uh, gender binaries. Um, And also, I don't know, did you listen to Disability Day on 3CR? I actually didn't have time. I was actually at work. Oh my gosh, go back and listen. It was the greatest day of programming. To any listeners who have not listened, oh my God, go back, take 12 hours out of your day. Mm Mm-hmm. It was the best. So um, I pulled one of my favourite interviews. Which oh, and awesome. we're going to be hearing it this morning. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. Yes. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So should we go ahead and start off with some um, little current affairs news, a mm. bit of stuff like that? Um, I know that, Lauren, you had something that you wanted to talk about. Oh, I came in all bursting with energy <laughs> because they're starting the COVID vaccine trials this week. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I listened to this beautiful interview this morning on the drive-in um, with a, a doctor. He's like 85 years old, this British doctor, who is going to be one of the first recipients of this vaccine. And he's had, they call it long COVID, for like nine months, which is wild. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know those one, the... the um, not that many people, but yeah, the people that don't get that sick at the start, mm. but 
it's kind of like a chronic fatigue type situation. Yeah, yeah. and the fevers and the respiratory and yeah, so they were just talking about how they're staging um, the vaccines. So uh, the most at-risk people in the beginning, so elderly people in out-of-home care um, and their frontline carers and then elderly people outside of out-of-home care and then so on and so forth. And um, they're starting with like two million people or so like, oh, you know, God, fingers crossed. <laughs> just yeah. fingers crossed. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's crazy to even have gotten to this point so fast anyway. Mm. What usually takes, I think, vaccines on average take years to develop. And we've done it in the space of, oh, my God, months. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, just fingers crossed it works. But, yeah. um, or, or that it leads to, you know, refining and, and mm. the next vaccine. Definitely. Have you got some news up? Um, I have a bit of news. Um, just in terms of local news, thought I'd mention this, um, but the... Prime Minister Scott Morrison has actually apologised to Kevin Rudd um, as <laughs> this is actually, yeah, pretty, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but um, he apologised to Kevin Rudd um, after accusing um, him that he left and re-entered Australia during, during COVID. Um, he's written to the clerk of the House of Representatives, correcting the record and apologising to Kevin Rudd after declaring erroneously um, in question time, and sorry, I'm getting these headlines from The Guardian, um, that the former Labor Prime Minister had been allowed to leave and re-enter Australia during the pandemic. I just love these little squabbles <laughs> that just happen. Always the undertone of the current affairs of just yeah. like... Australian politics, it's just bitchy like high school. <laughs> yeah. um, and I wanted to just mention, I think a lot of our listeners follow this story really closely, um, but the cashless welfare card that's, you know just horrendously racist and horrendously paternalistic and just discriminates so wholly against Indigenous people and particularly poor people, um, just passed Parliament yesterday by one vote. Mm. Um, so it got through the Senate and there was some real hope that it wouldn't it wouldn't extend into Parliament. But um, the independent MP, Bridget Archer, um, who'd been sort of repeatedly saying in media that, that she... Um, she was opposed to the cash welfare card, abstained from voting rather than voting against. And so it passed by one vote. Um, and if she'd voted no, then it would have been defeated. So um, people are quite frustrated with that and people are frustrated with the Labor Party's response, which is, well, let's see if we can tweak it to make it better, um, mm-hmm. which completely ignores the central point of it, which is that it is a control mechanism. So, um yeah, for people who want to push back against that or who want more information about what the cashless welfare card might mean for them, um, I would head to the Australian Unemployed Workers Union website. Um, they put out a lot of great resources in plain English that are really helpful to sort of navigate this system and can help you um, be empowered if it looks like you're going to be placed on the card. Yeah, um, this is really important as well. So I'm just um, mm. reading here as well. Uh, there are also concerns that, you know, criminal activity had increased since the card was introduced and a belief it was linked to the occurrence of financial abuse, fraud and exploitation, uh, particularly of older people. Like, mm. yeah. It's shocking. It's, you know, and we saw it particularly, um, I think that's what's particularly going about is during the bushfires, we saw that people couldn't buy necessary household goods. Um, so it's so restrictive. Mm. Yeah, I really, I could really talk about this. Whole yeah, <laughs> but we did want to mention um, the search for young woman Bridget Flack, 
um, for listeners who don't know, um, a young lady named Bridget Flack has gone missing. She's been missing since, I think, um, late November now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the family and friends of Bridget um, are obviously very concerned about her welfare and safety, um, but have noted that there hasn't really been um, an organised search conducted by authorities. And so they've, um, they're trying to organise a search together, basically. So... Um, for people who know Bridget or are a member of the community and, and want to assist with the search, um, there's a meeting at Dites Falls, which is in Abbotsford. I think it's along the creek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Today at 3 p.m. Yeah. Yeah. And just for a little bit of context as well, um, uh, yeah, Bridget went missing 10.30 a.m. on the 30th of November. Um, Bridget's a 28-year-old um, and was last seen on Ligon Street in Carlton. Um uh, Bridget told friends she was going for a walk at Yarra Bend Park, uh, but did not make phone contact later. Um, uh, she's Caucasian, about 170 centimetres tall, with a thin build and shoulder-length brown hair, um, and is likely travelling on foot or via public transport, and is also a frequent of the Yarra Bend Park in Mary Creek. Um, so, yeah, just with a little bit of context. And if, if, you, if you do know anything or have heard of anything, please... The family and friends are just urging um, you to contact the Melbourne North Melbourne Police Station. Yeah. Um, we might head to a community announcement or two, and then Jen is going to line up some fabulous music for us. There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function if we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative heteronormative family life but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity you know it's around the family life in the suburb as opposed to many you know single individuals who have shared queer family both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio just going to play a tune by Odjareem. This is an artist that I actually discovered quite recently. Um, she's London-based, um, a lot of 90s R&B with a UK twist kind of vibes, but this is um, a song called Give It Up To Me.
16 Days of Action Against Gender-Based Violence, November 25 to December 10. In the lead-up to Human Rights Day 2020, 3CR's feminist and gender activists bring you grassroots content demanding change for the annual 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence campaign. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash 16 days of action. Hi, we're from Braver College and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Um, I was hoping to find our alternative news intro, but... It's been a really long time since I've been here and I can't find it. So Zoya, in our next segment, sings a little bit of it. So please pretend um, that the real thing is playing right through your headphones. It's way better. Yeah, it's it's actually way better. (laughs) Zoya does a much better job. Um, But please enjoy our alternative news. To the real nitty gritty. (laughs) Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. It's time for alternative news. Yeah. <laughs> spirit. Um, Jen, do you want to kick us off with today's topic? Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll kick us off. So today um, we've decided to focus on something that uh, we think has been very much ignored by mainstream news, news especially in the West, um, and that is that in India – um, or in Delhi specifically, uh, on November the 26th, um, it witnessed the biggest organised strike in human history. Uh, over 250 million workers and farmers. Call me. I'm so sorry. Welcome <laughs> right, to the <laughs> Over 250 million workers and farmers, along with the um, allied students and women and civil society groups, uh, participated in a nationwide strike. Um, in the capital city and uh, this coincided with India's Constitution Day um, which actually commemorates the adoption of the Constitution in 1949. Um, The response to an unprecedented attack, um, sorry, they are marching in response to an unprecedented attack on workers' rights and farmers' protections um, by the um, Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his um, policies and governments so just in terms of what those new policies actually encompass so let me see Uh, (laughs) new amendments um, so to labor codes and introduced farm bills that have reversed uh, major historical progress made in workers rights and farm protections so it's something to do with I guess privatization Um, of farm work what I was reading was there actually so how it worked was there was a middleman so the farmers would distribute their um, produce and there would be a middleman and then the middleman would sell it off to someone else the um, policy is getting rid of that middleman in very simplistic terms Um, and so it's putting a little bit more pressure on um, the farmers and not regulating costs and it's going to make it harder to um, actually have a decent wage for a lot of farmers. 
In addition, as far as I can tell, there's some significant employment impacts as well. So farmers are, well, um, employed farmers and people who work on farms and things like that are more likely, there's a greater possibility of them being in casual contracts, in short-term contracts. And so job stability is also significantly impacted, which obviously is, is huge somewhere like India, where a lot of people work below the poverty line or close to the poverty line and therefore rely on regular work to know that they're going to be getting money in um, that often then just almost immediately goes out on other costs. Mm -hmm. I guess there's also the fear and how this might impact food prices as well. We know in India that food prices have a huge impact on social unrest. I know a few years ago, um, a change in the price to flour and a change in the price to onions caused huge unrest across the whole country. So this is this is pretty pretty enormous. Yeah. I also, um, sorry to add, but the law would also um, it's suggested to allow like hoarding of food grain until um, they actually can get a better price, uh, which was I guess illegal before this point. Um, but yeah, just to add to that point. So in effect, what that might create then is um, false shifts in the market in price of grain, which can obviously have a very adverse impact on people who need grain to live, but will have a positive impact on people who sell grain. And so that's got some big uh, help for capitalistic structures. And that is not surprising in many ways for Modi. Modi, as we know, is not uh, the most um, socialist of leaders. Uh, a number of India's socialist, socialist, uh, to put it mildly, a number of um, India's uh, state socialist governments have previously um, stated their um, dislike of Modi instead against Modi. Um, he has enacted quite a few borderline fascist. Um, to be honest, um, legislation previously, as well as some very, very, very racist, very, very xenophobic and very Islamophobic um, acts. So this isn't out of character, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. mm. And it's massive. Like, just all of that is, like, I just did the maths quickly. So India has 1.3 billion people as a population as of last year. 250 million people went on strike. Like a fifth of India's population went on strike. That is like, can you even imagine a fifth of Australia's population caring enough about mm. something to get out of the like out of the house in the morning? That's. I feel like Modi has to take this seriously, right? Like this is so many people. Mm -hmm. mm. Mm, it really is, especially since it's on. There's tens of thousands of farmers camped along highways in Delhi, still refusing to work and still insisting that there needs to be change. And on, so today, Tuesday, they've announced that they also want to have some action on, on, on this day as well, um, because uh, there are talks happening with a bunch of farmers groups and union groups with the government that keep sort of falling and collapsing and, and not moving ahead. So it seems like this isn't, this isn't going anywhere and these farmers are gonna continue, continue their strikes. Yeah, I think and this obviously is... this is in a country that's already been impacted so significantly by COVID. Yeah, and yeah. you know, urban workers have been impacted so significantly by COVID. Um, earlier this year, obviously, we had people in major cities, Delhi, Mumbai, places like that, no longer having work because um, 
building sites were shut down and a whole bunch of things were shut down and public transport was shut down and this is a country that runs on its trains and people were walking home you know there's there's huge issues both in urban spaces and agricultural spaces yeah and, definitely yeah. um definitely going off the back of covid i mean as we've seen throughout the world covid has definitely exacerbated um by tenfolds a lot of um issues that were already present and even like at the start of this year there were massive uh protests across india um uh, protesting workers uh were detained and uh they were met with pretty uh, disdain from modi but um so i mean this is the fact that it's happened before and obviously lockdowns happened and i think it's something like modi gave announced a 21 day lockdown um for yeah 1.3 billion people with just four hours notice it was crazy and like um were instructed to rain at their homes. And it's something like over 90% of India's 500 million non-agriculture workers are employed in the informal economy. So that's like, yeah, construction workers, food vendors, rickshaw drivers. Um, and so after the lockdown was announced, many people obviously found their industries and operations had closed and had no backup option. Um, a lot of people obviously don't have like savings or insurance or paid leave or employment rights. And so, yeah. What's um Zoya, you might know, is there much in the way of social security or sort of unemployment support financially? Oh, you're laughing at me already, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna assume that was a dumb question. <laughs> I'm honestly not much of an expert when it comes to the welfare state in India. Um I guess I could call one of my relatives and find out. That'd be great. <laughs> But to the best of my knowledge, there isn't exactly a huge um, welfare state in India. Such a big country just can't, quite frankly. And yeah, it is it is a little concerning now, sort of, Genevieve, when you're talking about all these different things, 500 million people potentially have lost a huge amount of their of their work and therefore have very, very little money. And then you've got an entire farming economy that are on the brink of God knows what. Um, and were these, uh, if this legislation goes through and crop pricing can be enacted and crop pricing that might push the cost of food up, that's a recipe for ongoing unrest and ongoing concern. And I suppose one has to wonder if, as you said, Genevieve Modi was able to put the country into lockdown for the sake of covid in four hours COVID hasn't gone anywhere and it's a pretty good excuse to try and um, go after these protesters and stop this unrest and stop this progression of, of, of protesting by announcing a lockdown because we saw that happen with the previous lockdown when all the protests against the um, uh, the legislation that they were pushing through to be able to track Muslims in the country and be able to in some cases put Muslims in camps in the country and there were huge protests that were happening as a result of that even in delhi you know there was an ongoing protest by women in one area of delhi that had been going on for months and months and months and these all got shut down by covid and they haven't resurged so we i wonder whether covid will be used as an excuse yeah i remember i yeah definitely remember that the um it was an effort to like strip uh muslims of their citizenship i remember exactly yeah. the details yeah. yeah that was crazy and then um, that was that massive protest where like 
um, a lot of Muslims were actually killed. Like it was like, oh, yeah, awful, awful. Um, mm. A lot of students. Yeah, yeah. And, and Delhi's, Delhi's always the place where this happens. So Delhi is a very political, it's a, it's a, well, it's the political center of, of India. It's, it's India's equivalent of Canberra. And it also has a huge number of um, students who are historically politically active. So Delhi's always been a place where protests have taken place and often where violence then erupts as a, as a result of that. Um, and on that point of violence, there are rumours circulating online through some news sources and through, you know, family WhatsApp chains. <laughs> um, it, it, there's a potential for it to increase. And this may not be true, but it does reflect the fear people have about what could happen and how significant this could be, that there is talk that this group of what are in effect Sikh fundamentalist warrior caste of people, they're called the Nihangs, they've been around for a few hundred years and are historically the sort of most martial arm of Sikhism, who are, which is in, you know, in effect, the most martial religion in India. Um, they are um, sort of uh, mounted soldiers, I guess, who fight for their religion and um, feel a sense of duty to rise up and defend their people uh, if, if they're um, threatened. And so there are reports that a few thousand of these Nihangs are working their way from Punjab down to Delhi with 250 horses. And whether or not that's true, I actually can't verify that at all. Um, there's a few um, uh, websites and news sources online who are working very hard to debunk it. And there are a few that are claiming it is true. And I genuinely cannot find an answer. But despite that, whether or not it's fake news, the fact that that's being raised as a potential definitely speaks to the fear of violence that people in India are experiencing right now. It's that level yeah, that's inspiration, isn't it? I mean, it's food sources, like in, in a country where people, so many people have lost work. Um, and it's sort of the global trend is not the term I'm looking for, but we can see this pushing back against um, these kinds of, governmental decisions and this significant social unrest, you know, Lebanon, Nigeria, Ethiopia, like all of these places, I mean, America as well. Um, there is definitely that potential everywhere. Mm. It's well, just 2020, really. <laughs> so great. Um, we will keep Tuesday Breakfast listeners updated. Zoya, if you could um, keep us updated with your family chat, that'd be really helpful. Absolutely. Whenever, whenever I get a uh, slightly uninformed uncle, give me something important. I will make sure that um, I pass that on. You'll hear yeah. it here I'm first. Just, <laughs> yeah, I'm just imagining it's such a dramatic scene, though, as in like to imagine if it was true. Like, like riding into oh Delhi. My God. <laughs> yeah. 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 And all these Nohungs, they all wear similar clothes. They have to wear bright blue and bright yellow. And so they, they would be quite, an, uh, quite a scene. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, God. my people don't do things by halves. No, <laughs> 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 Women workers answer to COVID. Capitalism created this crisis, workers can solve it. Like the sound of shorter working hours in secure employment with no loss in pay? A comfortable income for everyone 
Taxing the rich? Jobs made public with workers in charge. You women who want to be free, just take a tip from me. Radical Women is launching this winning plan on the 8th of December at 7pm. Join others to take these demands into our unions and communities. All genders welcome. Contact Radical Women at optusnet.com.au. Radical Women is a 3CR supporter. All right, we're going to play a tune by um, famous Melbourne band, one of my favourites, 3070. It's from their album that they put out in 2019 um, called Fluid, and this song's called Flowers.
listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. So now we are going to hear an episode of the award-winning podcast of QR Code, um, which was created by 3CR's own MV, James from In Your Face, George Maxwell and Anya Saravanan from Women on the Line. Um, This episode uh, is on intimate partner violence in queer relationships and George is speaking with Shamini, who's a worker in the LGBTQIA plus family violence sector. Laura McLean, who is a Wiradjuri woman and union organiser, and Libby Jamieson, who is the teleweb manager at Switchboard. Like a lot of the warning signs that pop up in heterosexual relationships as like red flags of like, oh, I'm really concerned about this relationship and, you know, people are getting more and more isolated and less available support that stuff happens in queer relationships all the time we are already isolated we're already isolated by you know the fact that we're not out um maybe at work or or to you know certain family members or at sport or whatever there's lots of stats around that because like we're we're further isolated you know due to the fact that there's you know like less of us so to speak and so there's this like more intensity in our relationships there's more like we have to stay together or like you know you're the one that's it both contexts and both like hetero cisgendered relationships and like and in queer relationships you know violence like violence is like can happen in in any relationship like it is just about power and control and when we you know we do this training we talk about you know there are sometimes like ready-made power imbalances for people who use violence to take advantage of. Um, so, like, you know, in a cisgender heterosexual relationship, there is the obvious power imbalance um, between a man and a woman. But it's also about... so, And there can be, you know, power imbalances in queer relationships as well based on things that aren't gender, things like, you know, financial position, things, you know. So there's, uh, there's lot, like, you know, who's, who's a carer? Like, there's, there's lots of different stuff. There's so many different power imbalances in the world. But ultimately it's about... There's power and there's also entitlement. You don't necessarily need a power imbalance for someone to feel entitled to, you know, your time, your resources, um, your body, your anything. And when that starts happening and it and it keeps happening, that's what abuse looks like. And it doesn't... I think there's a real misconception sometimes of, like, oh, like, you know, like, if, if someone's, like, not, like, towering above me and, like, yelling at me, that's, that's not abuse. And it's, like, abuse can be really subtle. You know, it could just be, you know, someone, you know, telling you they'll take pills if you don't stay with them, like, you know, the whole night. You know, we often think of, like, someone using violence as someone big and scary, and there's lots of different ways you can enact violence on someone. Some... Some some victims of violence don't, like, see themselves as violence. They see themselves as a carer of someone who is very unwell or, like, needs help um, and things. And so when we talk about family violence, people get really kind of wrapped up in, like, you know, what are the motivations? Like, why are they doing this? And I think it's kind of almost pointless to talk about motivations because ultimately the end is the same. Some people go, oh, maybe it's jealousy or, like, alcohol or it's money or it's something it's like yep those can be some enablers of violence but ultimately it doesn't matter like ultimately it's happening and the impact on you is 
still very real. And that, that still means that you need some help. Shamini makes another important point that whilst there's not a lot of research on this, anecdotally, we know that QDPOC people, which stands for queer, trans and intersex people of colour, face additional issues in relationships. I mean, I can only speak, you know, for queer people of colour. You know, you, you accept what, like the love that you can get in a way and, and what people are, are giving you and things. And I remember like reading, there was like a... It's like a multicultural queers in Australia kind of a book that was like a bit of a textbook for a while from the 90s and, you know, it was talking about all these, um, you know, cutie pox who were just like, yeah, like, got a boyfriend and, yeah, sometimes he's a bit, you know, racist but it's fine and, like, all this kind of stuff and I think things have gotten a lot better and I think that's, you know, currently where, um, uh, you know, like... With, with some with some trans folks where you're like, you know, yep, I am experiencing this, but, you know, it's, it's not as bad as some of my mates who've got it much worse and, you know, this is, this is the love that I can get and it's, it's, it, it, it's nice and it'll do for now and that sort of stuff. So, like, it's, it's, it's a pretty sad state and when we hear that stuff, like, sort of where you can't really, like, it's, you know, a lot of it's anecdotal and, and things like that and you just go yeah, like this shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening and that shouldn't be the love that you get. Like Shamini, Libby comments on how violence can be excused, issues of entitlement, and the fact that if we are using harm against a partner, we do have a choice to stop. Power and control is a really... is at the heart of understanding family and intimate partner violence. So one person's aim to have control and power over another person's and the way they do it. There's a myriad of ways that um, someone can try and control you um, and get their needs met first. And for me, it comes back to that choice. You know, we hear a lot of excuses around what's going on when, when someone's using violence in a relationship. I didn't mean it, you know, you made me do it. Um, I was drunk or I was taking other, you know, drugs or um, I had my, had a terrible childhood, I've got, you know, I'm depressed, etc. There are all these reasons that people will pose around why they are behaving badly in inverted commas. But fundamentally it comes back to my needs are more important than yours and I'm going to get my needs met first. At the centre of it all is we choose to behave. We choose our behaviour. There are 10 million excuses why someone would be abusive or violent, etc. But we choose to be like that, you know, and we can choose not to. So you, we know... Um, research tells us that many people who grew up in violent families don't go on to be abusive to the people around them. We know that people who use violence in their relationships can go to work and don't use violence at work. So it is a choice. And I think we have to really start from that point, that if you choose to use it, you can stop. And that we need to create... We need to move beyond... And I don't know, I don't have the answer to that. It's a complex thing where someone feels entitled to to um, act a certain way to get their needs met. 
So, so the question of accountability is a really difficult one. We have really, um, I think, unuseful structural state-based structure structures that don't help us, you know, to do that. You know, we have a a police and justice system that I would say is not just. How does it provide justice? And you know, there's only one way of doing it, and that's that doesn't suit all of us, does it? What other options do we have to keep ourselves safe and hold people accountable? What can community accountability look like? Laura unpacks accountability and why the stigma of straight cis men dating trans women needs to be addressed in order to reduce violence against trans women. Cishet men who are attracted or in a relationship with a trans woman, I think it's really, really important for them to be open about that and normalise it, you know, for what it is and be comfortable um, in their own sexuality, whether that's still straight or bi or whatever it might be, but actually being open like, yeah, this is my partner and blah, 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 and destigmatizing it, which will make the lives of trans women a lot safer because, you know, there won't be all of this, like, fragile masculinity and insecurity, like, you know, seeing a guy and then, like, you know, after you have sex and he gets all ashamed and then, like, actively violent, it's, like, really terrifying. It's like, oh, my God, is he going to murder me? And then is he going to say that I trapped him and he didn't know, you know? I know for me, like, I don't see any any healthy or positive relationships between straight trans women and, and men at all in the media or, like, anywhere. But when you do see relationships portrayed with trans people involved in the media it's never nice (laughs) i can't really think of any tv show or anything where it's been like oh that's so nice and happy but i've seen you know the hurt and the trauma and being like yes i relate to that i think men need to start holding each other to account a bit better i'm really lucky that the men in my life that i'm close friends with are like that and they actively Um, work to foster that sort of community and work to make shit men less shit, um, I suppose, which is, which is really cool. And, you know, have sort of been witness to it. Like one of our really good comrades now used to be like very like right wing, bit of a misogynist, uh, et cetera. And uh, my friend's circle taking him in and like fostering positive male relationships and positive like maleness like not toxic masculinity but like positive masculinity has really shifted him and now he's like a solid comrade who like is uh an ally for sex worker rights for trans rights um you know and comes out and does the things and does the work which is really cool so i think community is a really big um big part of it you know the the saying that strong communities make police redundant um i think we all need to be working towards stronger communities and especially stronger male communities um, where they do hold each other to account and they are actively working to make make things better and safer for women. I think it's really important. Accountability sounds great in theory. However, there are definitely some challenges to having these kinds of conversations with friends, as Sharmini explains. I think sometimes people have a very, like, I've got to stay, you know, like someone's relationship is someone's is their own business, like I can't get involved and people aren't going to like that and that sort of stuff. And that might be, you know, true. People might get really defensive. They might not be ready to hear, you know, that 
their relationship is unhealthy or there's like unhealthy things going on. But it's like, I think if people are really concerned about what's happening, like, and, you know, your mate's pulling away and like, you know, pulling closer into this, you know, relationship, the, the best thing you can do is just keep reminding them that you're there because the person using violence might very well be saying things like, no one likes you anyway, no one's here for you, they're just pretending. They don't even want you around. I'm the only one that wants you around, like, you know, like, and you're not, like, worth very much and blah, blah, Like, Like, the best thing you can do is just keep reinforcing that you are there and that you do care. And, yeah, and, like, I think if we, as a queer culture, like, got to a place where it was normal to, to check in with each other and, like, you know, like, like, you know, call people in about their behaviours as well, like call your friends in about their behaviours. Because the thing is, like, we're not, because we're not educated around what healthy and unhealthy look, relationships look like in in our communities, what, you know, healthy conflict resolution is, you know, what are some ways that, like, mental health stuff can be, like, weaponized, you know, like, that that's an abuse tactic that's not someone's mental health. It's, you know, like, so because we're not educated about that stuff, like... You know, we're not we're not talking about like terrible, horrible people doing this stuff. We're talking about our friends and and our family, like our queer family. And what about for ourselves? How might we address using harm in our own relationships? Libby talks about power, consent, and the importance of unlearning in order to navigate healthier relationships. It's about communication and consent, and to not assume that your your values and your understanding of the way the world works is the same as your, if you're in a relationships with people, with other people. So it's talking about, you know, how, how interactions and, and values, but also talking about power. Who talks about power in their relationships? Um, you know, if I think about it for myself, it's like, it's not a conversation that I have very often. I think that often when you're getting, newly getting into a relationship with someone, you might talk about consent then. Is this okay? Is that okay? How do you feel about this? But then we get into these grooves with people and we stop talking about it. We elevate our needs over others and we see that happening. We see that mimicked in, you know, in in heterosexual relationships. Who role models healthy behaviour to us? Who teaches us how to do that? I'm really encouraged in the preventative space where... Younger people are learning about healthy relationships at school. I'm really encouraged to hear young children, five-year-olds, talking about their bodily autonomy and saying, no, that you can't do that to me. That's my body. I choose. I never learnt that at school. So that's something, that's a start, that we give children the language and they practice that. What does it mean for us as adults? It's, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack, there's a lot to unlearn about being in a, a relationship that's equal and full of equity. That's right, this is Brother West from the American Empire trying to keep alive the legacy of John Coltrane, Curtis Mayfield, Nina Simone, and I am so glad you are listening to 3CR because 3CR is a force for good. It's telling the truth and allows you both to laugh, not at, but with others. Oh, what a grand radio station it is. All right. This is going to be a tune by the late but great uh, French singer-songwriter Lizzie Mercier uh, de Clau. 
Um, Lizzie was a pioneer of the punk movement, especially in France and especially for um, cis women. And um, yeah, so this is one of my favorite songs by her. It's called Fire. Thank you. 
God, Jen, that song, that has set my morning. Just, that's it. Work How is good. Be, work is going to be on fire. Yeah. How good is it? Oh, my God. When I first heard that song, I just, like, played it nonstop in my car, jamming out, <laughs> head thrashing. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> I would love to see you like that. <laughs> I hope one day I get to. Yeah. <sighs> Um, so next up, we're going to play a short little video that's doing the rounds on social media, but um, I thought captured the issue really nicely. Uh, it's a junkie media video talking about predictive policing um, for listeners who um, don't follow the work of the Flemington Kensington Police Accountability Project. Um, there's been a lot of work being done at the moment about Victoria Police's data around predictive policing coming out. And so um, maybe I'll just let the experts tell it. <laughs> Police around the world are starting to use computer programs more and more that predict where crimes are going to happen and who's going to commit them. Here in Australia, Victoria Police have said that they secretly used one of these programs only a couple of years ago. But there are some big concerns that come with this kind of technology. And right now, it's all being used behind closed doors. So, what do we need to know about it? Victoria Police only recently admitted that they were using predictive policing software between 2016 and 2018 in some southeast suburbs of Melbourne. They were using it to try and pick up on teenagers and kids as young as 10 who were supposedly high risk for committing crimes. Police around the world are increasingly using this kind of software because in theory, it can save on resources. You don't need to spend as much time looking for a crime if an algorithm can just tell you who's going to be committing it. But there are some pretty obvious problems with this system. And probably the most important one is that it creates a sort of feedback loop. If you um, have a group of children and you say these kids are more likely to commit crimes moving forward you're effectively painting a big x on their back and telling police go dig here to find crime so they're not predicting crime they're predicting the likelihood of an arrest. That's Dr. Jake Goldenfein. He's an expert in these kind of programs. One senior Victoria police officer said that the software they used was 95% accurate. But it's pretty easy to see how the police could kind of just make the program accurate by hounding the people it picks out. This type of predictive technology is generally based on how many times a person has been arrested and charged not how many times they've been convicted of a crime. That can really exacerbate a lot of biases that already exist. There is evidence that crime committed by particular racial and ethnic groups gets reported more. So there's an unequal reporting of crime amongst different class, economic and ethnic groups, racial groups. A predictive scheme in New South Wales called the Suspect Targeting Management Plan has been used by police and it's been really heavily criticised for basically just picking on First Nations kids. In 2015, 44% of the targets on the New South Wales police list were Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Victoria Police said that the predictive tool wasn't used widely in Melbourne because they were worried about these kind of biases. But even if that particular program has ended, it's pretty much impossible to tell if law enforcement in Australia is using any of this technology. That kind of secrecy means that A, we can't be sure how law enforcement are operating, 
and B, there's no accountability when things go wrong. Nobody in the community knows how that suspect targeting plan in New South Wales worked because the police have said that it would be compromising intelligence to say. Jake said that there really needs to be more oversight because this is a problem that will only get bigger with developing technologies. Why not let people understand what technological tools police are using and how they work so that we can evaluate collectively as a society whether we think that this is the kind of thing that we want. We are unable to understand how we're policed and governed and that's pretty anti-democratic. And even beyond that, maybe we should be allowed to question whether we want these programs used at all. Do we really think that we can predict dangerousness and do we get better social outcomes doing that? These systems are harmful when they don't work because they're biased but they've been probably also harmful when they work perfectly. These predictive policing programs are full of problems that make biases that already exist in the world that much more obvious and damaging. And the fact that Australians are being totally denied the ability to even understand this technology is even more concerning, particularly because it's going to become much more available in the future. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast, and now we have a very special live guest. Um, I'm going to be speaking with Shannon Higgins. Shannon is a photographer based in Melbourne um, who is here to talk to us about her work in the current exhibition titled Here I Am, uh, which aims to celebrate the work from Australian women and is being showcased in the ACT at the Australian National University. Thank you so much for joining us, Shannon. Thanks, Genevieve. Thanks for having me. All right. Okay. I'd like to just start off with some context. Um, Shannon, could you talk to us a bit about your photography? Firstly, what got you into it and made you want to pursue it as a career? Yeah, absolutely. I guess, as you mentioned, I'm a Melbourne-based photographer, generally covering with portraiture and commercial. And I guess I've been hustling away at this for about 10 years. Um, getting into it, I think I took a long way around. I think a lot of people um, with creative careers may not have necessarily pursued them when they wanted. I kind of spent most of my 20s crewing boats around the world and then picked up my camera when I was in my early 30s. So uh, I've taken a long way to becoming a commercial photographer. Yeah, and I'm aware that you draw um, a bit of inspiration from female empowerment and gender identity, could you dive into why this is an important focus for you and how you aim to represent this? Yeah, good question. I guess on a personal level, I'm surrounded by so many empowered women, um, constantly inspired by my friends who seek out these really non-traditional places for themselves with their creative careers. Um, But as a professional, I think the documentation of strong women and shining a light on those who have something to say has happened a little more organically. I guess it's a conversation around um, each photo shoot on what's important and what needs to be said and over time what message needs to come across and that has really started to show in my work over the last few years. So I I guess I can't really say that I represent or aim to represent in a specific way but mainly I just always try to create a safe space and an open discussion and a conversation that helps translate what needs to be said. Mm, Yeah, definitely. And I'd like to talk a bit about your involvement in the exhibition Here I Am. Um, Firstly, a little bit of um, detail on the exhibition, um, just for our listeners, uh, what the exhibition is and what it aims to do. 
Yeah, great. Well, Here I Am is an exhibition that's curated by a Canberra-based gallery. They're called Ambush Gallery, and it's inspired by the National Gallery Australia's initiative, Know My Name. So Know My Name is a two-year campaign and a celebration call to action for gender equality. The National Gallery of Australia has acknowledged that it only um, that it represents less than 25% of women and less than 33% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in their overall art collection. So it's a national initiative and also part of a bigger picture and a global movement that represents uh, women artists. So this whole program is focused on spotlighting not necessarily um, visual artists but also performing artists and is mainly coming out of the National Gallery in Canberra as well as a few hubs across Sydney. Yeah, and um, specifically on your work in the exhibition, um, do you just want to explain what you chose to do, what you, what um, what type of work you put into the exhibition and um, why you think it's important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with my work, uh, we were asked to submit one image and I, I think I, I decided to go with an image for Here I Am, which is a local talented uh, queer performer, Ewan Von Raphael. His image um, was shot in his 1970s-esque style kitchen. It's a very theatrical vibe. Ewan is wearing a beautiful white silk dress with pearls, extravagant earrings, striking makeup, and the frame is filled with smoke. It's very backlit and, like I said, very theatrical. This image was selected for a number of reasons, and I'd done other shoots to explore different concepts as alternative images to submit, but I kept coming back as this to this specific shoot and this specific image, just because I think it said a lot about femininity and empowerment in just one frame. So Ewan is like this extravagant, colourful, brilliant human who's, I, I guess, like he's very accomplished as a musician and a performer, but I initially met him as he works in the cafe where I get my morning coffee from. Mm. <laughs> and each day he presents with this completely different look, always this full face of makeup and well-thought-out, loud and bold outfits. And it was his searching for empowerment through femininity and how happy it made him through his expression that made me finally settle on this image. To have one image to speak of on the subject of empowerment um, is a bit of pressure, but I felt that this image really um, kind of took that empowerment to an interesting level and was a standalone piece of work. Yeah, of course. And how did Ewan feel the fact that his um, picture is now up in an exhibition? That must be pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. He was incredibly elated by it and um, it's presented um, on University Way, and I, I can go into that, but it's this two-and-a-half-metre by two-and-a-half-metre uh, image that's sitting in an outdoor exhibition on a cube, and so I think to have such a huge presence for something that he just does organically for himself, I think there's, a, there's an incredible amount of pride that went with that for him. Definitely. Um, and I'm sure that uh, you've browsed the exhibition or been to the exhibition. Um, did you have any favourite art or artists that you saw that um, really moved you and did you want to explain what you saw or if there was anything? 
I haven't actually been. I think lockdown has restricted us with the with the opening just happening at yeah. the end of last month. But I do definitely intend to see it. I think there's a couple of different avenues with this. Uh, Ambridge Gallery has curated three different spaces: one outdoor um, walkway within Canberra. In Sydney is an outdoor exhibition as well, and then they have their gallery. So my work is positioned on Exhibition Avenue, which is part of University of Canberra, and it's 24 cubes of contemporary artists, um, and each artist is presenting in this beautiful two-and-a-half-metre by two-and-a-half-metre scale. Um, along with that, there are a number of fantastic artists, um, large-scale murals like George Rose, Caffeine, Nicole Reed, a lot of my contemporary artists that I'm contributing to... Um, artwork regularly, whether that be publications or, you know, the faces, faces of Melbourne. So I, I, there's a lot of, like, pride in terms of being part of that camaraderie. Um, and then, of course, there is the showcase that the National Gallery of Australia has with all of their incredible women that they're representing from both past Yeah, past definitely. Yeah, this kind of relates to my next question as well. Just an overarching, I guess, um, sense and feel um, from you about what does it mean to you to be showcased, showcased around um, artists like these and why do you think it's important to have exhibitions like these? Yeah, absolutely. I guess I guess with that, working across a number of industries where it can be really hard to have your voice heard and particularly in male arenas in the arts, exhibitions and initiatives like these are vital. There's so much of our culture that's influenced by incredible women and I think that they really have shaped the face of visual arts, music performance, and we don't necessarily hear about this or, you know, I guess quotation, know their name. Mm -hmm. So it's great that there's an opportunity to elevate and share the spotlight. Um, So it's just incredibly important and also just to be able to share the spotlight, like I said, with these contemporary artists um, and know that we are actually, our hard work is recognised and we are actually contributing. Definitely. I, I think that's really important yeah definitely and just as a last note just for our listeners um uh, would you like to just let them know where they can access or visit this exhibition i know you've touched on it but just as a final note as well and where they can look at more of your work yeah um so ambush gallery is the curator for this specific initiative which is alongside the national gallery of australia here i am by Simply Googling Here I Am, you'll be able to find this information and the wonderful um, currently working contemporary artist is their um, focus. As for myself, uh, my main go-tos are website and Instagram, which is Shannon Higgins. I have a little trick with that. So it's Shannon with a Y, S-H-A-N-N-Y-N-Higgins.com and Instagram. So they're my main outlets. All right, awesome. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Shannon. My pleasure. Thanks for your time, Genevieve. So my name's Amber Karen Nicholas and my pronouns are they, them. What are you currently doing and what are you studying? Yeah, so I'm currently doing a PhD at um, La Trobe University, School of Humanities and Social Sciences, so that takes up a lot of my time. But other things that I'm doing, um, I'm also a research assistant at the University of Melbourne and I'll probably just let you know a bit about what my PhD is on. So my big loves are disability studies, critical disability studies. So I'm trying to merge that with critical carceral studies or or critical criminology, which are um, kind of more critical approaches to looking at, you know, what gets constructed as crime and and things like that. So um, I'm particularly looking at um, 
the experience of people who um, are subject to involuntary mental health treatment, and I'm using treatment with quotation marks in my hands, um, uh, while they live in the community. Um, so particularly people with a, a mental health-related disability or a psychosocial disability, as some people, you know, people have different ways of talking about it. So, yeah, that's me. Amazing. In a few sentences, what was your experience of the Decarcerating Disability Reading Group? What do you think are the benefits of being part of such a group with other disabled people? Yeah, so um, so this year I was part of a disabled people-led reading group on the book, uh, Decarcerating Disability, Deinstitutionalisation and Prison Abolition, uh, which was the book that came out just this year by an American um, disability studies and mad studies scholar um, called Liat Ben-Moshe. It was, uh, I, first of all, I was really, um, really happy to be invited to be a part of it by some really awesome sort of disability justice activists, Ben O'Malley Hermans and Georgia Mantle, who um, put a lot of effort into making the space uh, accessible, inclusive and welcoming. And the best part about it, I think, is just getting to really like connect what you're reading to uh, real life and the context that you're in and um, but also uh, you know the activism that, that we're all kind of interested in particularly like disability justice um, frameworks and abolition frameworks um, so that was was really great and it was just a highlight of my lockdown period as well um, being here in, in, in Nam in Melbourne so um, that was really great and I got to connect with others and yeah talk about you know make some really like theory dense kind of academic complex ideas more real and applied to real life so that was that was really great and learning from other people's experiences um, it was invaluable it was a really great space. What are two strong points you took away from the book Decarcerating Disability? Um, so I might be able to get too convoluted at this point but let me know if I am. I think one of the biggest points, and this is kind of like this central, uh, one of the central arguments of the book, but I, I found this really exciting and, you know, I was really excited about this book when it was coming out for this reason, but um, it's really the importance of connecting prison or penal abolition with deinstitutionalisation. Um, basically, it's trying to argue that they share a logic that is uh, or deinstitutionalization has a logic that is anti-carceral or abolitionary, which to me is a really exciting idea. So I guess in disability spaces, what we might call deinstitutionalization, um, it has a, has a link to, uh, well, it's primarily about the, the ending or closure or abolition of disability-related or specific carceral spaces. To be more specific, you know, large-scale, often state-run institutions, so you know, former asylums that often later became psychiatric hospitals and residential facilities, um, not exclusively for, but often in people with intellectual disability. So it was really trying to connect those two struggles. And although deinstitutionalization isn't often spoken about being uh, kind of abolitionary, the, the book's trying to argue that inherently it is, it is about a future where there is no need for <laughs> segregating people uh, based on disability away from the community and trying to link that with abolition. So that was the key point that I took away, that the struggles are um, really inherently linked and that, you know, deinstitutionalisation should be framed as an abolition issue, but 
disability also needs to be framed as a as an abolition uh, issue as well. So that was one of the key points that I took away from it. Um, the other big learning for me, I guess, the other key point was to be a bit more critical about how deinstitutionalization gets framed and more in abolitionist spaces, having a bit more meat on the bones of how we talk about what deinstitutionalization was and what it led to. So sometimes, um, I guess, the common narrative about what deinstitutionalization was that was that people were dumped on the streets, and these things kind of um, lead to the rise of prisons taking the the role of, um, of of institutions, particularly for people um, who you know don't have a safety net and often are the most marginalized in our community. But the book kind of argues that when we blame deinstitutionalization for these things, we are often um, we have to be aware of how that kind of intersects with backlash uh, towards the idea, the very idea of deinstitutionalization. So, and having a better appraisal of how different factors are actually to blame uh, for these, these phenomena. So the removal of um, social safety nets and things like that. And of course, not to use too much jargon, but you know, neoliberal reforms, greater social insecurity and precarity. Um, these are the things that create the conditions for um, much of, of sort of what happens in a, the post-deinstitutionalisation context, you know, increased incarceration of um, disabled people, particularly people with, you know, cognitive disability or um, psychiatric or um, mental health-related disability. So that was a really key point that I took away from it is to see, kind of see how those arguments can actually bolster the claims or arguments of people who are um, actually maybe advocating for return to forms of re uh, return to institutionalization or the continuation of contemporary forms of institutionalization. That was a really key point and it really, she obviously made much better in the book, but um, uh, that was a really key point that I took away from it and it really um, enlightened me about that part about different dynamics that are happening in these common narratives. I hope that wasn't too long. That was excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Wasn't convoluted at all. It was so incredibly clear. Final question. So what is one question you still have after reading the book? Mm, that's a really good question. This was something that we unpacked a lot in the, the reading group, actually. And um, it's about how the book, it's a really good book, but, um, you know, like a lot of American writers and scholars, it's really occupied with the um, North American kind of context. I think the book does a really great job of unpacking settler colonialism and in saying that um, because it, it's talking about a, a, a settler colonial context. There's so much we can apply here um, in so-called Australia. But there's also, there's also kind of an assumption in the book that... Uh, what happens in the, the US applies everywhere, which I think, you know, not necessarily true. And I just, I want to know more about what has happened elsewhere in the world and not just in um, settler colonial states, but um, how different is deinstitutionalization in other places? What, what took place? How did that happen? Or did it, did it happen? And do other yeah, I just felt like there was a lot of open, um, I had a lot of questions about anywhere beyond the US. But I mean, of course, the book is based on that. But 
I feel like it, it was kind of just saying everything that is applicable, this is what deinstitutionalization was and is, and this, this is how it happened and what informed it. But I, yeah, it's, that's just one particular story in one particular place. And um, we know that in Australia and, you know, in, in the US, it, it happened differently and in different places at different times. And I just think there's so much complexity that, um, yeah, we need to look beyond those contexts. All right, we're going to play another tune by the legendary uh, Chaka Khan. This is one of my favourite, favourite, favourite pick-me-up songs, so I hope you enjoy it this morning.
you're not in the best mood after listening to that song, I like How good is it? <laughs> it's like the ultimate like wake up in the morning, put that song on and you'll have the best day. Yeah. <laughs> that's my that's my new favorite. Yeah. Um so that's the end of our first live show back in the studio. Our maybe third last of this year before we go yeah. on holiday. <laughs> Um, but we did want to mention a few really important things um, before we head off. So tomorrow is the final day – oh, sorry, Wednesday is the final day of the 16 days of gender-based active, activism against – sorry, I'm just getting the the uh, speak louder. Uh, 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. Um, and so Wednesday the 10th is Human Rights Day. And so 3CR has some programming happening on Human Rights Day for um, – for the whole day, really. So if you go to um, Human Rights Day 2020 on the 3CR website, you can see there is some Global Intifada, Behind Closed Doors, Robbie Thorpe and Viv Malo will be speaking. Um, and then there's a special on Sunday, this coming Sunday, the Queering the Air 3 to 4 p.m. slot. Um, they're presenting a panel called Invisible Voices 2020 and Human Rights Day, which is a special broadcast on the issues impacting on queer communities um, that have been forcibly displaced across the globe with a particular focus on the Asia-Pacific region. And so that'll be a live panel discussion and a QA. and a um, And it's a partnership between Invisible Voices, um, my apologies, a collaboration between Democracy in Colour and the Forcibly Displaced Peoples Network in partnership with 3CR. So that's on Sunday from 3 till 4. Um, and as always, you can tune in on 855am or via the website. Um, and that'll be really, really special to listen to. Um, and up next in the 16 Days of Activism, Giselle Hanna is presenting the Accent of Women show, which is fabulously every Tuesday from 8.30. Um, so keep your ears out. Keep your ears out. Keep your ears on. Yeah. Keep, oh, God. <laughs> keep your ears it's too, it's too early to get up. Keep your <laughs> ears yep. tuned in to 3CR. <laughs> <laughs> and have a great week. Australia's first LGBTIQ plus purpose-built centre opens early 2021 and we need your support. Be a giver this Christmas and send your loved ones a gift of pride. The Victorian Pride Centre has launched unique gift cards to fundraise fitting out the centre and they're the queer holiday cards of dreams. These affordable gifts and fun stocking fillers support the LGBTIQ plus community. Gifts of pride can be purchased with a few clicks. Head to pridecentre.org.au to start shopping and subscribe. The Victorian Pride Centre is a 3CR supporter. Hi, Mans here from the Japarong Embassy. On October the 26th, after two and a half years of defending sacred women's country, the embassy, family, friends and supporters were forcibly removed from country by Victoria Police. The Andrews State Government, alongside Major Roads Projects Victoria, have begun their violent attack to desecrate the sovereign lands of the Japarong to make way for the duplication of the Western Highway between Buangal and Ararat. There are many old growth trees, one significant tree in particular, a 350-year-old yellow box gum, 
the directions tree. She's a placenta tree who holds the DNA of the Japarong ancestors. She was felled by a chainsaw at the hands of a government that is asking for a treaty with its first peoples. The embassy and its frontline protectors are calling out for your help. To find out more, including how to get to the embassy to help defend on the ground, visit the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy's Facebook page. Educate yourself, donate to their chuff campaign and spread the word. 3CR supports the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.